Welcome to the I Dare You podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. I'm your host, Elaine Andino, and we believe that together we can end exploitation. Joe, thank you so much for being our guest here today. I am so excited about our conversation for everybody to hear about the connection between porn and trafficking and learn kind of some things that we don't really talk about too much as a, a community. And I know that you are very used to having this conversation. <laughs> You're very passionate about it. And each time I'm very grateful that I get a chance to talk about it because it does need to be something that we explore and tie to the more common parts of each of our lives mm-hmm. because it's not as abstract as people would believe. Yes. Well, before we kick off, I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit about you. So you are the Executive Director of Demand Disruption. Yes. Tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in this work, and then what Demand Disruption does now. I always feel like I let people down with the answer to that first question. How'd you get involved in this? There's got to be some earth-shattering thing, and it really wasn't. It was an awareness. Um, like so many people that are in this fight, uh, I learned the awareness of anti-trafficking in, and the trafficking problem in the greater Houston area through volunteering. And in this case, it was Elijah Rising. Uh, and then I saw, I saw a video one time that was a seven-minute video. I was sitting at work. I remember I used to be in oil and gas. I was in a sales position, did strategic accounts. And I got this link out of the blue from somebody in our house church. And that link was a seven-minute video that talked about how many illicit massage businesses are in Houston. And that, that rocked me because I'm a Houston guy. Like this, I'm a native. I'm as Texan as it gets. And so as we started to volunteer, it became more and more clear, despite my reluctance, that I need to get involved with demand. I need to understand why someone buys. And then realizing that the bottom line is why we have such an issue that we do have right. is demand. So meeting the founder of what was then Love People Not Pixels, mm-hmm. uh, Bo Abdullah, I got to really understand this buyer-informed perspective. And in doing that, seeing how to engage with somebody who is at the point where they've made a decision to buy. And we have explored that ever since. And yeah. It's been years and years now, and we've learned quite a bit. So tell me, what does demand disruption focus on now when you're with buyers? Yeah. So we've got two primary mission directives. Mm-hmm. Um, one, change the buyer's heart. Now, I know that sounds lofty and pretty when you say heart, but it really is what it sounds like. How do we connect with somebody who made that decision? Because nothing ever happens when it happens. Right. There's something that led to it. There's a reason that man is there buying that day, and there's a reason that woman is there being exploited that day. There's a timeline that led up to that. And so we want to reach that buyer, and we do that at the point of arrest. When men are in handcuffs, we are there to begin a conversation with them before they go and get arraigned mm-hmm. and, and go before the judge. We're there after they're arrested and convicted. We have conversations with them in a class setting in some counties. And in doing so, we began to unpack and, and work on discovering what led you there and the stories that come of that. It's, it's amazing to see somebody go through that discovery and it wreck them a little bit. And then they start to want to understand, how do I never do this again? So that's the first thing, change the buyer's heart. The second is we are going to be an obstruction between the buyer and the exploited. And we, we take that in many forms. We want to change the buyer's heart, but we're realistic. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't there. They're not there yet. They feel like this is almost an entitlement in a culture that tells them, you can have what you want. Go ahead. Uh, we tolerate commercial sex at a shocking level if we stop and really look at it. How easy it is to buy another person in our culture. This is, sounds crass and it is sad, but I can tell you through personal experience, of course, I didn't complete this, but 
I can buy a person faster than I can buy a pizza online. It's just a fact. I can go directly from a porn site and click an escort service. Mm-hmm. And within, I think, I think on our slide, it's two minutes and 44 seconds, I think is what we ended up with. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just my inability to order pizza, but it took me about uh, four and a half minutes to right. do that. And, and when we look at that and we put them side by side, we realize that's a cultural issue. And we've got to understand it on those terms so that we can engage it and interrupt it. Let's go backwards, kind of in the same manner that you work with these men. So you meet a lot of these men at the point in time where they've already gone through the process and all the barriers they've had to break down internally to go purchase sex. So you're meeting them kind of at the end of what we would call the escalation. And then let's work backwards to talk about how they get there. But tell me first, when you are with cops and you're at a sting, what is that like and what are the men like towards you when you're having this conversation with them? Wow. You know, it's amazing how infrequently we get that question. Uh, So I appreciate the chance to kind of dig into it. Uh, I'll get in big trouble with Hatra and HPD Vice if I don't say they're not called stings. They're called buyer. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for correcting that. Buyer suppression activities. Yeah. No, Um, I'm glad you said that because that's the common term everybody says. Uh, Our our role there, first of all, is recognition. Mm -hmm. This person this person is there, for many of them, on the worst day of their life. They are about to be found out that they have a serious problem, mm-hmm. and they've been acting on it either for a while or the first time. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they're oftentimes using a part of their brain where they haven't even connected that they have to tell their wife and kids now. So we are realizing they're in a panic state. And so when we engage with them, our goal is to begin a conversation with what brought you here today. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't think a person in that mindset would be willing to talk. Right. Once we let them know we're not with the DA's office, we're not with the, with the police, we're actually here for these men to begin that conversation. And we ask them, what brought you here today? Sometimes the answer is, I'm glad I got caught. I don't, I don't want to be this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, other times we'll have men that will start to make excuses. Mm-hmm. And then as we're talking, the excuses will turn to, yeah, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And it turns in from, I made a mistake to, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed. And then it'll come to people even asking for prayer. And we just need to be willing to bravely into asking the questions mm-hmm. and then realize that the state that they're in, our whole goal is to follow up in a couple of days. We get nearly, I think, I think the last total we ran was close to 75% of the men we talked to give us their personal cell number wow. because we asked for it. Yeah. And I said, look, man, I want to talk to you. I want to call you after all this has happened. I want to get an understanding of how you did through all of it. And we just kind of reset and we get some coffee. And we talk about what brought you here today. How did you get here? And for the first time, for many of these men, at the point of arrest or after they've been convicted, when they come across us, that's the first time they talk to another person about their porn addiction, about mm-hmm. their, their buying behavior. They've kept the secret from their families and other people for so long. That becomes the entire goal. Don't let anybody know that I am this thing. And so we, we want to sort of open a conversation to have that discussion. Human trafficking affects so many people and devastates so many lives on both the buyer and the seller's side. We know that there is a lot of just meanness and degradation that happens, especially from the pimp side and the trafficker side. As you said, these guys, a lot of them don't want to live this way, but they've also been sold a lie the same way the sellers have often been sold a lie. Absolutely. And what comes with that is shame and a whole cycle 
that I know that you unpack a lot, it's easier to sit in the place of condemning mm-hmm. a buyer yeah. than really taking the time to figure out how did the buyer get there and what can be done. Yeah. So from your perspective, like why is it so important to be talking to the buyers? And do you think it's effective based upon what you've seen? The chance to explore that question is very important because we all want the villain. We want to point to the person who's responsible. And ultimately, if we just look at it in a vacuum, if you're buying sex, you're the reason somebody is out there being sold and being exploited. That's true. But if we stop and we think about this and we understand why that person's buying, we are first and foremost about accountability. I had conversations with two men today. When I say that they couldn't be on further ends of the spectrum, Elaine, mm-hmm. one guy has spent much of his life in the public eye, famous, mm-hmm. successful. The other person, you wouldn't know if he was standing next to you. Mm-hmm. Just another person, another married man. But the overlap in their stories, mm-hmm. buyers, consumers, had so many similarities because this is not for a certain gender, age, race, you name it. We've got to look at this from a, a wider a wider perspective. So. When we ask, why does this exist in our culture, trafficking? If we don't spend time understanding how somebody got there, mm-hmm. like that woman got there somehow mm-hmm. right. to be exploited. Mm-hmm. And she has that timeline I mentioned earlier. So we've developed a timeline. It mm-hmm. starts as young as nine years old. Nine years is the average age of first exposure to pornography. Wow. When we think about that, we can all kind of clench up as parents and as human beings at how terrible that is. But let's, let's dig a little deeper. Nine years old, you're a child and you see that at nine. You start thinking, well, I guess that's what it is to be a boy in a relationship or a girl in a relationship. Now you've got this preconceived notion of this violent, aggressive thing you saw acted out that's supposed to represent sex in a relationship, and it doesn't. And you're ashamed, so you're not going to tell your parents. And so now you're carrying that, and that's your truth about sex and sexuality. What an awful disadvantage to begin a life of where you want to have a relationship with somebody. And we see it manifest as we go up this timeline. I won't do the whole timeline, but then we see average age for first smartphone is 12 years old in our country. Mm-hmm. Well, you saw that at nine. You didn't not ever see it again until 12. And now you have ubiquitous access. Right. Always on. 15 years old. Right around 90% of boys have watched pornography or are actively viewing it at that age. I can tell you this. One point we have an opportunity to understand this is think about when you were 15, if you had that, what would you have done to yourself? I would have destroyed myself. You're you're thinking with your amygdala, the front of your brain. It's all stress and arousal and reaction. There's no logic there. So I've got this at my fingertips and this is what sex equals. So I guess this is what I should expect and what I should be. Is it any wonder why we get to this point? And and again, not excuses, but components that lead to it. And when we look at it that way, We have to ask ourselves, when somebody first buys sex, now the question, how did they get there, starts to get a little clearer. A culture told them that this is what it is to be a man in our culture. Mm -hmm. We do an exercise (laughs) with the guys that are in our STAR program, which is our program for men who are convicted of purchasing sex uh, in Montgomery County. They are leading the way. They do an excellent job there. Uh, Our STAR program, one of the exercises kind of came by accident. I was talking to a group of buyers and a partner we required them to bring. And I wasn't getting a lot. It was just kind of quiet in the room. I was like, that's it. I walk over the dry erase board. I do a T. This may not translate verbally, but I draw this T. And on one side, I said, all right, man, tell me what movies, audio, video, uh, streaming services, tell me what they say it is to be a man in our culture. Rap music, country music, you name it. What does it tell you to say? 
And it was, it, they were just alpha male, mm-hmm. you know, don't take crap off anybody, porn positive, uh, multiple girls, side piece, even if you're mm-hmm. married. They were just going down the list. And then I put on the other side, imagine you're, you're at home and your doorbell rings and from the deep recesses of her makeup case, your daughter says, daddy, that's my date. Can you get the door? Now you're walking to the door. What do you want on the other side of that door? And they started saying things like respectful, compassionate, mm-hmm. humble, leadership, mm-hmm. provider. And the contrast between both sides of that was so stark. I said, when did we start settling for culture's definition? So when we stop and ask ourselves what we normalize, mm-hmm. we got to ask ourselves why. Right. What's behind that? And right. what does it lead to? And so I'm glad that you brought up porn. Talk to me about why we're talking about porn as we're talking about human trafficking. Like, why is there a correlation that it matters when kids are nine, buyers, people defend watching porn all the time. Who Mm -hmm. am I hurting? This is a stress reliever. This is, you know, what I just do by myself. What, What are some reasons why maybe that's not quite accurate? Yeah, I'll answer that. Let me change the setting. Imagine me in front of an entire church and doing a question and answer with a pastor, getting that question, and me telling a church, uh-huh. y'all, this is not a morality argument. Don't let it become that because this industry, the hypersexualized industry that is pushing all this, right. they want it to be. So they can point and say, judgment, you're, you're shaming us based on, yes. you're forcing your morality on me. And it's this fundamental argument that helps him sidestep the truth. This is not a morality question. This is a, this is a health question. So when we talk about, well, what does it matter if I watch porn? That is a logical question because it's sex. And I'm a, I'm a red-blooded American male or woman. And so sex is good. Why, why does this matter? The type of sex I like in pornography is none of your business. Mm-hmm. So we start down that morality trail. Mm-hmm. We have to stop and realize that it's so much more than that. For the viewer, I created something called the escalation dynamic. And the escalation dynamic was a direct result of having a conversation with a guy in handcuffs. We were talking, and, and I've told the story so many times, but I think it bears repeating because it kind of lays the groundwork for why we have to understand what pornography really is. As we're talking, he said, look, man, I'm just a single guy who got caught. I don't have a problem. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't know what to say to that, so I just said, can we just talk about what it's like to be a man in our culture? And where we went from there was talking about softcore pornography and hardcore pornography. Mm-hmm. So this... I've seen it kind of category. And I asked him, do you realize that 90% of softcore pornography has violence or degradation toward women in it? 90%. Why do you think that is? And of course, he didn't say anything. He was kind of standoffish. That's all right. He was in handcuffs. He wouldn't go anywhere. So I just kept going, right? Um, And I said, the reason that is because the part of your brain that processes sexuality and violence, very closely knit, and that aggression stair steps you into very soon triple X porn, a different stimuli. So that you have a cause and effect in your pleasure centers of your brain. And it's also much more addictive. It is compared to narcotics in the level of, of addictiveness. And so when we think about that, we got to realize the porn industry does not care about you. That's an understatement. Like mm-hmm. you, they need you, but they don't care about you. You're disposable. Whenever the porn industry develops content, the real fantasy isn't the, the corny scenarios and the different combinations that they do on scene. The scenario is that any of it's real, Mm -hmm. any of it, because the actors, even after one or two opportunities, and this is coming from um, friends of mine who have been in the industry, people I've gotten to know and have a great deal of respect for have left the industry and said, 
the drug addiction, the the reliance on narcotics just to get through that life, yeah. it's through the roof. And the manipulation is every every shoot. So we, we've got to realize that it's not real. And then that stair step goes from I've seen it, I want to be around it. And that's where we get into kind of calling the shots with a webcam yeah. or at a strip club. You get to engage. Now, it's all very legal at this point, right? Right. And we all think, well, you know, to each their own. It's tacky, but none of my business. People don't truly realize the predatory nature of this industry, mm-hmm. but then also, guess what? That webcam, it goes both ways. Yeah. I have talked to multiple men who have been blackmailed because there's a camera on them too. Really? And the things that they are asking that woman to do, that's getting recorded. Wow. And they get a little snippet of it in their email and they get blackmailed. And I'm not saying that for shock at all. I'm saying mm-hmm. that because it's not something you would ever, ever expect. And it certainly isn't the way you treat a customer, air quotes. Oh. And so now right. we're, we've seen it been around it and then that stair step takes us to okay i think i want to experience it who does it hurt pornography is human trafficking's greatest commercial i i've said that so many times because i've seen that. it play out sadly so many times yes you've got this representation of this thing that you think that you somehow want to oh it'll be better or it'll be this it'll be that and finally you you escalate for some people to the point of purchase we've got to understand that in a society that makes it so easy to buy that there is a there's a cost for every transaction. What you do and what you agree to is going to cost something. And then when you balance that reward, you don't realize that there are over 40 negative consequences to viewing pornography. Really? 40. Okay, 40. All right. So tell me what a couple of those are. All right. I will tell you categories first because okay. that, I think, it tells a big part of the story. There's psychological. Mm-hmm. There's emotional. There's physical. Mm-hmm. And there's spiritual. These categories, we, we fill out these categories from research and then also our own personal data from hundreds of buyers that we've worked with uh, in the physical category. If you have not been listening so far, I'm talking louder into the mic <laughs> because you need to hear this. Erectile dysfunction. There are studies after studies and more and more that shows this aggressive ascension on this arc of ED medication and marketing of ED medication, mm-hmm. along with high-speed pornography. It, it, it is overlay. It, yeah. In a matter of like a window of about 70 years, the increase from people who are struggling with ED, because that's not to be trivialized. That's a vascular that's issue. It's very real. And so uh, there should be medicine for that. I but, literally have had men tell me, I watch porn, but I'd make sure to stop watching too much of it because I don't want to have ED. Yeah. <laughs> like, How much is too much? Show me that right. ratio, buddy. <laughs> I, I want to see it because you're going to find out at the worst possible time that, oh, no that way. was too much. Right. Yeah. Dang it. I did. I miscalculated. Yeah. And why is that? If I were sitting here and the first time I heard this, I'd be like, this guy's making this up. Let me, let me put it in this term. Your mind will associate sex and sexuality with the repetition of it. If I have never watched pornography and I'm with a woman, my heart's going to race. I'm going to be nervous mm-hmm. because I'm expecting to have sex mm-hmm. and it's exciting mm-hmm. and it's terrifying for some people, right? But if, my, if that point comes and I've got 500 hours from my 10th birthday to 19 years old, 21, whatever, and then that point comes, my brain has associated sex with that screen, that phone, that video, that cause and effect. I have been... Just spiking my pleasure center in my brain, oxytocin, all these hormones are released, and it's all been video-based. It's all been based on this thing I'm seeing and not this person I'm engaged with. Mm -hmm. So that's a physical attribute of it. Um, There's psychological depression. There's a study recently from college students, and the sad truth is that this uh, a a large cross-section of them 
were struggling from acute depression mm -hmm. and directly related to the pornography that they were viewing and the loneliness and the shame cycle they found themselves dropped into. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of different reasons that we point to that. And the number one reason is that you will never see that warning label on a porn site. Joe, who am I hurting? I'm not even supporting the porn industry. I don't use my credit card. It's all free. Right. That is a logical argument. Mm -hmm. Here's the truth of it. How much did you pay for your last Google search? Mm. Seriously. It's free. And what is the most powerful affluent organization on earth? Why? Now, I'm not saying Google is behind the porn industry. Hear yeah. me right, because I don't have money and I can't be sued. Uh, Google, I'm your friend. It's this freemium thing, right? Yeah. Well, they're not making money on the user. They're making money on the advertising because they have hundreds of millions, if not billions of customers. And porn does the same model. Yep. And so they, they really capitalize on that. And so when we look at who am I hurting, personally, the consumer they do not care about the fallout from your relationships. They don't care about the legacy of secrecy mm -hmm. and your struggle. And you as a parent who won't have that conversation mm -hmm. with your kid because you're struggling with it. If that sounds very specific, it is because that was my story. Yeah. I mean, I struggled for seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. And I, I went through most of that time not thinking I was struggling. But I was certainly not going to have a conversation with my oldest son about it right. because I wasn't opening that door. I taught him how to treat a woman, how to be respectful. I emulated that with the way I treat his mom. Mm -hmm. And um, there was never really a conversation of danger of pornography. Right. And, I, and that was a failure as a parent on my part. Yeah. And there are, there's, there's a generation of parents that can have the same story because mm -hmm. we grew up with this thing that we weren't ready to handle. Everybody talks about generation gaps and mm -hmm. technology gaps. They've always existed. Mm -hmm. They've never existed in the way they have in our lifetime. It was 18 years when the internet basically reared its wonderful, terrible head. I, I remember those dial-up days. <laughs> I yeah. remember that, yes. Yeah. Dial-up, <laughs> man. So many jokes. All right, I'll, I'll leave that alone. But yeah, there, that's, that is just scratching the surface of some of the discovery that the men that we work with and the teens we work with. Mm -hmm. We had a presentation. The range of ages were 12 to, I think, 21. There was a camp counselor there that was volunteering. And toward the end of that, this kid looks up and says, porn is destroying me. This kid's 14 years old. Wow. He's been struggling for four years. He said his 10th birthday. His buddies came over and one of them showed him something on an iPad. That was it. And so when we realize that there are real consequences, mm -hmm. we have to go in making informed choices. Mm -hmm. We are not the sex police. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Joe from Demand Disruption. We're going to pause here, take a bit of a break, and we're going to come back again tomorrow for part two of our conversation. Join us as we talk more about the link between pornography and human trafficking, as well as what do we do when we ourselves are struggling with a porn addiction or a loved one is struggling with a porn addiction? What are some steps we can take to freedom? What are some resources? And stay tuned to listen to success stories that Joe has had with former buyers and how they go from sex buying to advocating against human trafficking. Thank you and see you soon. Thank you for listening to I Dare You, a podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. Please like and subscribe to the podcast as well as share this with all of your friends and family. And we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to message us at podcast at uaht.org or you can find us on all social media platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.